If you don't know me, my name's Jamie. I lead the site here in Bradley Stoke. And uh, you've come on a great morning, actually. We're just finishing uh, the last session of a, of a series that we've been looking at, a book in the Bible, a letter in the Bible, actually, um, that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. So uh, we're going to be looking at this uh, for the last time in, uh, in chapter 6. So if you've got your phone or your iPad or your, even, dare I say, a paper Bible, you never know, then uh, you might want to just uh, get yourself tuned in to chapter 6. Now, um, is anyone here familiar with the concept of, of the life hack? Am I, uh, people understand what the, the, the concept of the life hack. So I guess it's one of these sort of millennial phenomena that have uh, popped up in the last few years. I think uh, I looked on Wikipedia this week. It defines the life, or says life hack or life hacking refers to any trick, shortcut, skill or novelty method that increases productivity and efficiency in all walks of life. And there's a whole, <coughs> if, you, if you get into the internet world and the blogosphere, there's a whole almost kind of genre dedicated to this, you know, dare I say ridiculous kind of, um, kind of you know, all these little tips and tricks and shortcuts of, uh, of, of how to just make our life seamlessly efficient. And of course, they, they sort of spin off all, their, their, all the different genres. So, you, you know, there's thousands of websites and books and uh, online magazines and all these kind of things dedicated to kind of, you know, the latest leadership hacks and the latest marriage hacks and the latest... Uh, you know, parenting hacks and how to get your children to eat their broccoli hacks. And, of course, they naturally uh, generate their own spoofs as well. So I was uh, having a look around online uh, a little bit and, and came across a few that I particularly enjoyed. Um, so th this, one, this one here, uh, how, how to get your kids to give you a back massage. I particularly appreciated that, that little, uh, that little life, lifestyle tip. Um, I've got a couple more as well. So uh, this one, I've convinced our eight-year-old that I hate the sound of the vacuum, so now she vacuums whenever she's mad at me. It's <laughs> like, genius, why haven't we done that before? And, uh, and the final one was, um, was, was this one for getting their kids to, to, to take their medicine. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not medicine, it's Pepsi. Which, uh, so uh, it, it, it kind of uh, en ends up uh, spoofing itself after a little while. I don't know if, uh, if, if you've ever been, if someone's ever tried to sell you on reading the Bible, and they've kind of given you an explanation, something like this. They've said, it's a brilliant manual for life. And, uh, and I guess w when we're told it's a brilliant manual for life, and by the way, I think it is a brilliant manual for life. I think it's, I think it's a real bedrock that you can build your life on. But it, you kind of come to it with the expectation that it's going to give you all the answers, that it's going to give you a set of rules, you know, 21 steps to parenting heaven, or whatever it might be. And, and, you know, we can just follow these kind of special, supernatural, Jesus-boosted life hacks, and, you know, we'll just sort of see through this Christian life. And, you know, and actually, if you come to any book, especially the book of Ephesians like that, I think often we'll, we'll be sort of sorely disappointed. Um, ben Welchman always jokes that his, his primary spiritual gift is, uh, is stating the obvious. I think probably my primary spiritual gift is repeating myself. So uh, I, I, <coughs> if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember I, I, I spent quite a long time talking about actually this second half of the book of Ephesians can sound suspiciously like a, a list of rules. It can sound suspiciously like a lot of rules and legislation and do this and do that if we don't understand the context of what Paul has just been talking about. And that would be a, a massive shame because actually the whole emphasis, the whole thrust of what he's talking about is actually that we're not being brought into a religion or a religious system with a set of rules, but we're being brought, we're being invited into an amazing relationship with God and a life of grace. 
And actually, what the Bible invites us to do is, is not follow a set, of, a set of principles, but actually it invites us to let every sphere of our lives, our work and our relationships and our marriages and our parenting and our creativity and everything else that we do, and let that come and be folded in to the grace that God has given us. In fact, if we go, I'll just play very, very briefly, right back to the, the very opening statements where Paul kind of sets the tone for this entire book. He says in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, the, the book of Ephesians is a book of two halves, like I was explaining. That, that first section, he just unpacks this lavish grace, this relationship with God that we are invited to. And then as we move into this section that we've been looking at more recently, he says, well, therefore, in light of all of that, and he starts throwing out some, some kind of snapshots, some pictures of, of what life looks like, all the different contexts of life look like when we bring them in to this world of grace that we've been invited into. So let's just very briefly, before we delve into uh, Paul's advice here for, for children and young people and for parents, to just look at where he's been. So... What does grace mean? What, what does it mean for us to have grace? I think, first of all, having grace means that we're not being instructed to follow the demands of a religion. Amen? Actually, instead, we are being brought in, we are being invited in to a wonderful relationship with a God that we can know experientially. You see, here's how religion works, okay? So pretty much every religious system that's ever been devised works the same way. Usually there's a code, right? There's some kind of moral code. And uh, usually there's a, there's a set of demands, kind of religious demands heaped upon this. And it takes an extreme amount of discipline and, and self-denial and this unquestioning commitment to live up even to the most sort of basic rung on our religious ladders that we construct. And really in, in religion, the extent to which any of us are acceptable, the extent to which any of us are, 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 are accepted is determined by the extent to which we achieve. And we manage to kind of bash ourselves into shape and, and get up, move further up the rungs of this ladder. You see, religion by nature is an excluder. It pushes people away. It creates shame, which is actually, a, a, you know, probably the ultimate relationship killer. But grace, or I, I suppose I could say Christianity, grace, by contrast, is, is kind of the polar opposite to religion. You see, grace isn't a demand to follow the, the legislation of a, of a religion. Grace is an invitation to come into an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with a God who loves us unconditionally and who we can know by experience. You see, grace isn't about me trying to make myself good enough to appease a God who's angry at me. Grace is about me being reconciled. That's what the gospel is. It's about me being reconciled into a loving relationship with a God who delights in me. It's about us being accepted, about us being loved right here where we are at our worst and being brought into a genuine relationship with him from day one. And I guess the question comes, well, you know, how do we, you know, how do we have a relationship with, with a God that we, that we can't see, who isn't tangibly here in, in a physical form? How can we relate to somebody just like we relate to a friend or to a husband or wife or, or to a child? And Paul keeps using this wonderful word access as he goes through this book. Like here in chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Through him, which is through Jesus, we have access in the Holy Spirit to the Father. 
He says, actually, we are being brought into this relationship where we can experience his tangible presence, his tangible life at work in our life by the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts. And um, so first of all, grace means we're not, we're, not a, we're not being kind of bashed into following this moral code. Instead, we're invited into a religion. Secondly, grace means that we don't have to pay the price hello, for our mistakes. But actually, we receive the undeserved gift of freedom and forgiveness. You see, religion, again, comes with the concept of justice, doesn't it? And on one level, that's absolutely right. There, you know, there needs to be justice in the universe. But according to principles of religion, every time, every time you step out of bounds, every time there's a, there's a, a transgressing, to use that old-fashioned word, a stepping out of the boundaries of, of, of the limitations that are put on, actually there's a price that has to be paid. Something, you know, there's something you have to do to offset, to mitigate the, the, the transgression, the, the sin that you've committed in this religious system. And according to grace... Jesus says, actually, he has taken that upon himself. And that according to his lavish gift, actually, we are given that unconditional gift of forgiveness. He says here, right back in chapter 1, he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, which is what he did on the cross, but we'll be talking about next week. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he just lavished on us. God just delighted to lavish that grace all over us, that unconditional, undeserved forgiveness and acceptance. So grace means we're not just being instructed to follow the demands of a religion. It means we're being brought into intimate relationship. It means we're not having to pay the price for our own mistakes, but we receive the unconditional gift of forgiveness. Grace finally means that, hey, now I'm a, I'm a signed up Christian. I got baptized, right? So I'm not just being given a brand new manual, a brand new list of life hacks, a brand new list of, of rules to follow, right? Here you go. Here's how you do it properly, boys and girls. No, actually, instead, I have the very Spirit of God, God's own Holy Spirit living in me, dwelling in me, having a relationship with me and giving me the desire, giving me the power to live the kind of life I was never able to and probably never interested in living before. He transforms me from the inside out. That's what he does for every, every believer. I'll give you a, well, a trivial example, a small example I probably shared before. But I, I first came, to, came into this wonderful relationship with Jesus when I was about 15. And after a few weeks, people began to notice, and I began to notice, that the words that came out of my mouth were radically different from the words that were coming out of my mouth before. Particularly some words which I probably shouldn't mention in a sermon that used to come out of my mouth quite frequently were now very rarely coming out of my mouth. And I hadn't thought, well, you know what, hey, I'm a Christian now, I'm, you know, I'm about to get baptized, I, sh I probably ought to clean up my, my language. No, it was the Holy Spirit in me, he was giving me a different heart. You know, Jesus said, out of, out of what's in your heart, your mouth speaks. So in other words, the, the nature of the, of the words that come out of your lips are a fair indication of what's going on in the inside of you. And as the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change what is inside of us, then actually what comes out in terms of our words and our actions and how we relate to people begins to change. I wasn't bashing myself into shape. I wasn't reading through these chapters thinking, oh, I can't do that anymore, and I can't do that anymore, and I've got to start doing this, and I've got to start doing that. It was the life of God. It was the, the relationship with the Holy Spirit that changes us and transforms us from the inside out. So we look at a person who's come through into this relationship of grace, 
we think of it like, you know, say those before and after shots. I stayed in a, in a um, nice kind of guest house a couple of years ago, and, they, and they, they sort of filled the wall with these, you know, pictures of the derelict kind of building, and then, you know, the, through the transformation process. So we say, actually, before, before grace, I'm walking around, I'm guilty, I'm in shame, I'm carrying the weight and the heaviness of all the things that I know that are wrong, that I've done. After grace, I'm clean. I wake up every morning with the lightness of spirit, knowing that, that before him, in God's eyes, I'm perfect. He, can't, he will not accuse me of anything. See, before grace, I'm pretty much powerless. I'm virtually powerless to live anything of the kind of honest, good, decent, loving life that I feel like I should live. After grace, I have this beautiful spirit in me who's changing me from the inside out, who's gently leading me step by step to a different person. Before grace, I'm always falling short. I'm just never good enough. I'm always just screwing up. I'm just never quite there, never quite making it, always missing the mark. After grace, I know that I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm delighted in just the way I am, just the way I've been made. Before grace, God is this kind of distant cold figure out there in the universe somewhere who may or may not exist after grace i have this wonderful personal relationship with god the spirit's presence tangibly living in me every day and that if you and i hope i hope you will have been doing this you'll, you'll do this you've been kind of immersing yourself in the book of ephesians particularly these first three chapters as you get through this you begin to unpack these wonderful things and it just kind of lights up inside us you know paul gets into some really deep stuff, you know, why, why we are the way we are, how, with the nature of shame and, and reconciliation and everything else, and, and this wonderful message of grace. But wonderfully, grace doesn't stop at the end of chapter 3. And as he suddenly gets in and starts throwing out all these pictures of, well, what does it look like? What does it look like in our families? What does it look like in our marriages? What does it look like in our workplaces? What does it look like where there's racial conflict? What does it look like? Actually, grace hasn't stopped there. You know, grace isn't just a transaction which gets me my ticket to heaven. Thank you very much. I'm out of here. Actually, grace is an invitation that we can, we can begin to fold into it every sphere of our lives. And that's what we're called to do. So how do we do? How do we do our marriages? How do we build a lifelong satisfying relationship? Actually, we do it as an extension of the grace that's given us. How do, we, how do you deal with a, with a terrible boss that you just feel like you can't bear to work for anymore you do it as an extension of the grace these are some of the things that paul begins to unpack in these later chapters how do we do community together i spent a long time on this a couple of weeks ago looking at the unity that we have together we do it as an extension of the grace how do we do conflict we don't get anywhere in life without that without conflict do we how do we how do we do that well actually we do it in in grace i love some of these examples that, that paul just dips into so briefly for example, how, how, do, how do we do racial reconciliation? It seems to be one of these things that, you know, we think, you know, it's 2018. We, we love to feel like the world has just moved on, and yet we see flaring up, even in Western nations, such, such racial conflict no one seems to have answers for. Paul says it, it's grace. He says here in chapter 2, he says, he speaks to the, to the two sides of the greatest kind of uh, racial divide there was in his day, Jews and, and Gentiles. And he says, hey, you, you're, you, you, grace has brought you Jewish Christian, grace has, through, through kindness, through, through forgiveness, brought you, adopted into the family of God. And then he speaks to the Gentile Christian and he says, hey, grace, through no good of your own, 
has just lovingly and generously brought you into the family of God and you're adopted together. And, and, and hey, look, grace has brought you into the family. So there's no space for, for, for hostility and tension and enmity anymore because, because by grace you are brothers and sisters. How do, how do, we, do, how do we do church leadership? Paul begins to talk about these, these leadership gifts that have been given to the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in chapter 4. And he says, well, actually, what is, the, what is the primary measure of success for leadership? Jesus talked about leadership being equipping. Jesus talked about leadership being laying yourself down, taking the lowest place. So he says what success looks like is actually it's not building your own platform. If you're an evangelist or if you're a prophet or come and buy my 65 CD box set, it says it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You see, success in leadership is giving it away. It's giving it away. And that's not to say that we won't establish ourselves. It won't, it's not to say that we don't lead out and do things. That comes with the nature of the gifting. I love, um, let's take prophetic leaders as an example. We've got um, Angela Kem coming to spend a weekend with us as a church in, uh, in, um, in June, I think it is. So June, is that right? So Angela has got a remarkable prophetic gifting. She's got a remarkable leadership gifting as well. She's part of, um, I think it's Mike Betts' apostolic team for the relational mission sphere of churches, part of New Frontiers. And um, she's going to be with us. I I just love the heart of what what she said to Andy about the weekend that she wants to come and spend with us. Because she said, actually, my heart is not that I'm going to be doing loads and loads of prophesying over people from the front, although I'm sure she will do that. That's part of her gift set. But she said, actually, my passion is that when, I'm, when I've gone and when I've spent the weekend with you, actually, that everybody would be prophesying. You see, that's how we do leadership in grace. It's not building myself up and, and how much can I do to generate my profile. It's actually how much can I give away, how much can I impart. That's what leadership under grace looks like. So, let's come to this passage here in chapter 6. You've had a little while to find it. It says, children, and by the way, I love the fact that, that Paul immediately writes this to the kids. You see, actually, his expectation is very much that, that children will have a relationship with God of their own. They can have a faith of their own. They can honor people as much in their own right. I love, I love the fact that, that every word of this letter is written just as much to our young people as it is to everybody else. And it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, he's quoting back from the Ten Commandments actually, and he says, well this is actually the first commandment that came with the promise attached to it, which was this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, or I like one translation that says, do not exasperate your children. I've probably done that a fair few times. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I love in all these different sections, Paul typically speaks to the people who in the culture of the day, and to be honest, often in our culture, he speaks to husbands, he speaks to dads in particular, he speaks to masters or employers, and he he speaks to various other people who in the culture of the day would have been in a very domineering position. And he says to them, hey, you know, grace means that you're going to lead differently now. Grace means that you're going to look after the people that you employ differently now. Grace means that you are going to treat your wife differently now. Grace means that you're going to raise your kids differently now. You've got, you need to shake off the old, you know, like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, take off the old clothing, as it were, and put on this new life of grace. And he speaks to the children and he says, you need to honor. I was thinking about this passage this week, and for me it raises a couple of questions. I'd love to spend a few moments just on those questions, and 
unsurprisingly, I think the answers to both of these are actually grace. The, the first question, particularly for me, I've got a, I've got a four-year-old and a, and a two-year-old, and it, it's something like this. It's how, how can we as parents raise our children to honor us and to do what we say? Because that's, that's good for them, right? I mean, Paul points out in this passage, he says actually that, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land, that actually this isn't a harsh, draconian thing. Actually, leading our children to, to walk in the right ways that we were talking about this morning is, 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 is good for them. It's a loving commitment to make to our children that we do that. But how do we do that without becoming these kind of domineering, kind of monster ogre parents who just who, who, who dominate and, and exasperate and provoke our children to anger and, and, and it's very hard for them to honor us? How do we do that? And I'd like to suggest we do that through grace. I just want to look at Jesus' example, actually. I think every, every time through these passages, Paul is always bringing us back to Jesus. Now, Jesus actually obviously didn't have kids, did he? But actually, in, in, in many ways, he was very much a spiritual father to a, well, to a whole nation, really, but particularly to, to the, the group of, of, of disciples and followers that he had. I just want to look at a handful of little snapshots of how he related to his spiritual children and the disciples. And uh, I've, I've, relate, I've kind of reflected on a lot of these moments as, as a dad over the years and as a primary teacher, which I was for, for nine years with the, with the kids that I work with, and kind of constantly thinking back, actually, how does, the, how does the, the, the life of grace that Jesus models here, what does that look like for the kids in my classroom? What does this look like for, for the children that, I'm, that are in my home? And um, the, the first thing I love about Jesus is how he responds to trouble and arguments and difficulty and sin and all of these things very rarely with any sense of scolding or any sense of rebuke well there's rebuke but it's but it's not a, it's not a harsh scolding rebuke it, he sees everything as an opportunity to teach and to lay foundations in life let's look at a quick example if you want to flick over to mark chapter 10 verse 35 um the context of this is, is the disciples of, um, well, a couple, a couple of the disciples uh, have, have come to, to Jesus on the choir and said, um, listen, mate, when you, when you get into your kingdom, um, how's about if one of us gets to sit at your right hand and one of us gets to sit at your left hand? That, 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 that would just be, you know, basically, we've had a look around at the group and we reckon, essentially, you know, we're, we're just going to, we're a, a little bit of a cut above everybody else. Could, could we just recognize this formally now, please? Because, you know, I think, I think that's a necessary step. And, um, and Jesus, very lovingly, rather than slapping them about the face, which is probably what I'd have been tempted to do, begins just to, just to speak about the cost and do, you know, do, you, do you understand what it is that you're talking about? And then it kind of blows up even more because the other ten come along and they catch wind of the conversation that's been going on and suddenly the whole thing kicks off. And, you know, parents, you've probably had this kind of situation among siblings. I've certainly had this situation in my classroom. And you said, you know, this is, this is all going everywhere. And my first instinct is to go, <laughs> and, and I love what Jesus does. And he, and, and, and he pulls them aside and, and he says, you know, our instinct is to, uh, is to apportion blame in these situations, isn't it? It's to apportion blame. And actually, he doesn't do this. He pulls them aside and he begins, he says, right, this is an amazing opportunity to lay some foundations and to teach. And, and, uh, and he begins to teach them about leadership. He says, those who are considered rulers lord it over people. 
you know, great people, people with great gravitas, they exercise authority over them. That's not the way it is to be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would be your slave. He uses each of those opportunities to teach the life of grace. And there's been some times when, you know, I've, I've, I've had to, to rebuke Anaya or Sam or deal with a, a disciplinary situation in the classroom. And, and the temptation is to walk away from that thinking, oh, didn't that go badly wrong? And actually, if you've got it right, no, it hasn't gone badly wrong. What you've done is you've laid foundations in those people's lives, in those young people's lives, which is going to last them a long time. I love how um, Jesus related to the disciples. Second thing, not as, not as they were now, with all of their faults and all their failures. It doesn't take any spiritual gifting whatsoever to recognize the, the difficulties in our, in our children and the people around us, does it? But he deals with them and he relates to them, not as they are, but as they one day will be, when they're holy and perfect before God. I love, um, if you just want to flick over to Matthew 16, I love how he deals with Peter. Peter is the kind of, of all, of all the guys in the group, like he is the, he is the liability of, of the crowd. Like he's the hot-headed one, he's the loudmouth one, he's the one who's always getting himself into trouble, always getting everybody else into trouble. He's the one who thinks so far too much of himself almost the entire time, kind of bumbling into stuff. I think any other rabbi would probably have him off the team in a, in a fortnight. Like, you know, it'd be like two strikes and you're out, and they wouldn't have taken very long. And, um, and I love the way that Jesus deals with him and calls him out, not as he is, but as he's going to be. So he says, um, his, his name was, was Simon Bar-Jonah, which um, I was reading Catherine Rolana recently, who's done a bit of study into the the background of the name. He says, essentially, in, in, the, in the context of the day, his, his name would have been understood by people as, as meaning so, something that's very kind of top-heavy and unstable and son of somebody who really likes their alcohol too much. Um, so th- the, that was the kind of um, the sense of being unstable and a little bit kind of out of it was the way that people saw him and was kind of the way that, um, that he was living his life a lot of the time. And he says, actually, no. He says, I tell you, and he gives him a new name. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, which means something that is rock steady, rock solid. He says, and on this rock, I will build my church. You see, he's speaking to him and he's dealing with him, not as, as he is now with all of his faults and all of his embarrassments and all of his failures, but he looks down the road into his future, a future that's been shaped by grace, shaped by the grace of God, and says, you are rock solid. You know what, the, the, the early church is going to get built around that rock solidness, is going to get built around that ministry. And you see again and again the way that, that Jesus just relates to him, not as, not as who he is with all of his mess, but who he's going to be. I love to ask God sometimes. I, I used to do this in the classroom. I do it with my kids. God, would you just help me to understand the destiny of these children? Help me to understand who they're going to be. I used to have a little boy. It was just like the most perfectly behaved class in the entire world, apart from this one lad, and, uh, it's a, which is a very interesting dynamic, actually. And... Um, I, I, he had a bit of a reputation, so I knew he was coming, and, and, I, and I began to ask God, Lord, I, I want to see the gold in this guy. Like, it's not going to be difficult for me to see his mistakes, to see his failures. They're going to they're gonna rear their head pretty soon. I, I, I want to see the, the goodness, and God just be able to, began to reveal to me certain things that just in his nature, particularly the way he would just care about people and take new people under his wing. Week one, I got him doing that. I got him kind of getting alongside the new folk, just making sure. Just, I set him up to succeed. 
and, and, and he had an absolute blast of a week. And he was helping people and he was doing all of these things. And I, and I was able to, and I, and I said, I, I made an intention on day one. I'm going to treat him as God has shown me he can be. And I'm going to relate to him in that way. And I told all the other children, I, I, I pointed out all of these things. I said, hey, I want everyone to be like this. Look how he's welcomed people in. I said to his mum, I made a point of going out on, on the Tuesday or the Wednesday and going out to his mum. I said, wow, he's done all these things. You must be so proud. And you could see her face drop like no teacher has ever said anything like this to her. And he had his moments, but, but I was determined to, to treat him not as he was, but as God saw him, as he one day could be. The third thing Jesus did, which I love, is just how he nurtured the fledgling steps of faith and the steps of maturity. There's this comedy moment, if you go back um, a page or two uh, into chapter 14 from verse 22. And... Um, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and, and one of the things you can see he was trying to do in that moment was, was trying to change the mindset of the, of the disciples. So he was kind of testing them, seeing whether they would think from a supernatural point of view, like, we can feed these people. And they keep coming back to this, we haven't got any money, there isn't a shop, send everybody home. And Jesus is, is, is kind of coaching them up to begin to think with that supernatural mindset, you know what, we, we can do something here. And he gets them involved in doing the miracle. And I love it now, this is a few hours later, and, and they're in the boat sailing home, and Jesus comes along walking on the water. And, um, and it says here, uh, and when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If I was Jesus at that point, I might be thinking, Peter, you've got some shonky theology, by the way. What do you think, there's ghosts roaming around the sea? Anyway... And, and Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out in the water. There must have just been this. Uh, I, I can only imagine there was a wry smile on Jesus' face at this point. Yeah, this wasn't Jesus' idea. Jesus didn't say, right, come on, Peter, show us what you're made of. Peter's just thinking, hey, I've just fed 5,000 people with a packed lunch. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, Jesus, just tell me to come out in the water. Just, okay, it wasn't quite what I had in mind, Peter. But, but you know what I love about it? He said, all right, come on then. And for three or four steps there, he was actually doing it. He was, he was at, I mean, it didn't end well. It, it ended very wet, and Peter remembered they didn't know how to swim. But for that, that little moment, his, his steps of maturity, his steps of faith, guess what in our kids? They don't always come in nice, measured, linear strands. So they, they come in bumbling fits and starts, and we see these things. And, and I love just how Jesus relates to him, that he's there. He goes with it. He lets him take the lead on it. He's like, no, no, listen. Holy Spirit didn't tell you to do that. No, 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 no. It's like, come on, let's give this a go. And he picks him up. I bet with just that little smile. I, I'm, I'm sure the word Muppet came out of his mouth at some stage. I'm not sure. Oh, you have a little faith. And then he just gives him. He says, why did you doubt? You were doing it. You were actually walking on the water. Why did you doubt? To sum up, we do <clears throat> these things in grace. I heard something Bill Johnson say the other day. He says, actually, we, we honor people well when we, we celebrate who they are without tripping over who they aren't. And I think that is so important with, with our lives, with our children, with our families. I'm going to miss this next question because we need to get into worship. I just want to leave us with a few questions to think about as the band comes back up. Maybe you can pick one and just, and just have a, a brief chat with the person next to you. The first one, do you, do you mostly perceive Christianity as a religious system? Or as a relationship with God? Um, maybe, maybe you could say why. Secondly, 
In what areas of life do you think it is most difficult to live that grace lifestyle? Do you think there's an aspect of life you just think, actually, it's just too difficult to bring grace into that? And thirdly, what would the world be like if we all extended unconditional grace to one another?